Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Calling all trivia nerds, Brittany here, and I host the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast with my best friend, Meredith. Is your next car ride looking like a snooze fest? We've got The Cure, three rounds of awesome trivia every week. Harry Potter, Disney, science, sports, you name it. No more silent car troubles. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Connect, laugh, and learn with your kids, big and small. (laughs) New episodes every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 88 of The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and uh, if you've listened to the show before, you know me. If not, hello, I'm Mick Sullivan. Nice to meet you. So this episode features two really interesting people. Both of them were from the Revolutionary War era, though James Fortin was a little bit older. He was actually a veteran of the Revolutionary War. They both lived through the Revolutionary War in Philadelphia, and both of them were free black men, uh, and they made a tremendous impact in a lot of different ways, business, art, all sorts of stuff. So I'm really excited to share this story with you. But I also need to let you know that March 3rd is right around the corner, and March 3rd is Kentucky Meat Shower Day, and we have a tradition every year of uh, doing a live reading of my book, The Meat Shower, on YouTube Live. And this year will be no different. It is a Sunday, so uh, I'll have some some time scheduled. Um, you can find those on the website soon. I just want you to get it in your brain. March 3rd is Kentucky Meat Shower Day. But enough about meat showers. Let's get on with the show. James Fortin's mother did not want him to get involved in the American Revolution. But when his father died, it left the family in need of money. And the boy's job working for a grocer didn't exactly cut the mustard when it came to meeting their financial needs. But young James saw opportunity in the war. He knew that if he joined a privateer ship, at the end of the ship's journey, he would get a cut of the ship's takings. Even with the entry-level job of powder boy, this money could still be a nice paycheck. Plus, manning cannons probably seemed exciting. Joining the crew of the Royal Lewis, a ship commanded by Stephen Decatur Sr., seemed like a sure win. Decatur was well-known and respected as a ship captain. During the Revolutionary War, America didn't really have a navy, so they partnered with privateers, Boats sailed by privateers were owned by individuals, but they fought enemy ships on behalf of a government, and, as a nice perk, they got to keep whatever they took from an enemy boat. So at the end of a journey, they'd split all the take amongst the crew as payment. But the Royal Lewis wasn't as sure of a bet as James had figured. Early in its second run, they came across a British vessel in the Chesapeake Bay. Captain Decatur planned to fight, 
but when he was surprised by two more British ships, much bigger than his own, the Royal Lewis was forced to surrender, and all of the sailors aboard, James included, were taken captive and placed on board a British ship called the Amphion, which was bound for New York City. With their homeland an ocean away, the British army had no regular prison for these prisoners, at least not in America, so they made their own in the harbor of New York City. Since they had a powerful navy, which had taken control of New York City early in the war, they held the harbor. And also, since they had a powerful navy, that meant they had a bunch of big old boats that were no longer useful for much more than floating. And some of the old vessels barely did that. These ships became floating prisons for thousands of Americans. While other Americans captured with James had a lot to worry about facing the prison ships, none of their concerns compared to the worries that James now carried. James was black. In 1766, James had been born free, and his father had been born free before him, thanks to his own father, who had freed himself from the bonds of slavery in the early 1700s. The white sailors of the Royal Lewis would likely be imprisoned on the wretched ships until a prisoner exchange would bring them back home, but the fate that awaited most African descendants captured by the British army was being sold into slavery in the Caribbean. James knew this was most likely for him, and it was terrifying. It meant a brutal life, permanent separation from his family, and a loss of freedom. However, as the Amphion made its way towards the hulking yet leaky prison ships in New York, the British captain got to know James and was truly impressed with the young man. He also appreciated the fact that young James had become friends with his own son, who was also on board. The curious kid had a habit of getting in the way of everyone else on the crew as they did their jobs. Striking up a friendship, James taught the boy to play marbles, and the two continued to entertain each other over the journey north. Wishing to help James find a brighter future, the captain invited him to join their family in England and continue his schooling there, all but guaranteeing a good life. But this was impossible to James. He said no, he would not betray his country, despite the injustice of enslavement that kept so many like him in bondage. And even if he would have wanted to, he would not have left without seeing his mother again. Not wishing to see James banished to a life of enslavement, the captain agreed to do what he could to guarantee the boy a spot on a prison ship where he could wait for a prisoner exchange. For seven months, James languished aboard the prison ship HMS Jersey. Sickness ravaged the prisoners. Rats roamed freely while the men picked worms from their gross bread. And on the occasion that they were even given meat, it was putrid and nearly as tough and brown as the leather of an old boot. At one point, James had a chance to escape by stowing away in an oversized trunk belonging to an officer which was being taken to shore on a rowboat. But the boy elected to allow a sickly passenger to go in his place instead. Thanks to his own good health and youth, James survived. He was granted parole under the conditions that he not take up arms again in the war. 
Imagine his mother's surprise when he showed up back in Philadelphia. Over the many months of silence, and knowing the fate of so many others in the war, she feared the worst, and believed that he had died. He had not died, James clearly informed her. It was a pleasant reunion, but soon enough, James had to find work again. He joined a merchant ship and sailed for England. He was gone for about a year. And upon returning to Philadelphia, he decided that he'd had enough of the sea. But he couldn't quit the nautical world entirely. The war was over, America was a fledgling nation, and James embarked on a new career in the same sail-making shop that had once employed his father. As sailing ships were the dominant vehicle of the time, sails for those boats were a crucial part of the business, the economy, and the world. It was an important industry. As an apprentice, James was considerably older than the usual young people learning the trade. But the owner really liked him, and saw in him great potential. Before long, he became a shop foreman, leading a team of workers that included dozens of white men, many of whom resented James's talent and new position of power. For a decade, he worked there. Until, with the help of the owner, he took over the business entirely. Between owning a thriving business and inventing an improved type of sale that won acclaim and more sales of, uh, sales? James became one of the wealthiest business owners in Philadelphia. He employed dozens of white and black workers for the decades that he owned the sale shop. And when he wasn't inventing improved sales, overseeing production, or raising his growing family of eight, James was saving lives. With a workplace located on the waterfront, there came several times when someone was in trouble within eyesight of the shop. Oh no, Mr. Fortin, someone is drowning! Never fear, James Fortin, to the rescue. Oh dear, that person over there can't swim! Well, I can, and I've already rescued one person, so let's make it two. Make way for the Fortin Ferry! Mr. Fortin, it's happening again! Someone's drowning! Geez, this is really turning into a thing, isn't it? Here I come. Hey, uh, guess what? There's someone drowning over there. Again? What is this, an episode of Baywatch? Floatin' Fortin, back to the rescue. Four times. James saved the lives of people drowning near his shop four times. And for that, of course, he was honored as a hero. And while he might have been remembered for the lives saved, the sales sold, and his status as a veteran of the Revolutionary War, perhaps he should be remembered most for his outspoken and unabashed stance against slavery. After the Fugitive Slave Act, he co-signed a letter to everyone in Congress, which clearly stated what a sin slavery was and urged the politicians to legally end it. When a bill was presented, one single representative George Thatcher of Massachusetts cast a vote that sided with James. Despite the loss, James thanked the single brave man and focused his energy on fighting slavery. Even though speaking out would hurt his business, James became one of America's earliest and loudest abolitionists. With his money and connections, he often helped free some of the enslaved by purchasing their freedom and helping them learn a skill. This was a common form of fighting back against the system. It's believed that he was involved in the Underground Railroad to some degree as well. 
but his influence on a man named William Lloyd Garrison was perhaps most consequential. Garrison was a white man who opposed slavery, but he, like many others, saw a future where enslaved men and women were freed and relocated to a colony on the African continent or elsewhere. But James Fortin considered himself an American. He was born free on American soil, as his father had been. And he was able to find success despite racism. And he felt anyone else was capable of the same, if only they had the opportunity. His influence helped convince Garrison that black Americans were equal and had the same potential as anyone else. And most importantly, that abolition, ending slavery, should lead to citizenship. Black Americans should take their equal place in American society. With this new mindset, Garrison launched The Liberator, a fiery abolitionist newspaper that had subscribers all over the country, many of whom James had convinced to subscribe. This paper influenced the thinking of many and helped change a lot of people's minds, just like Garrison's. James Fortin's stance was simple. Black Americans will be part of American society and given equal access to education and opportunity, and they will thrive and add their thread to the American fabric. It's what had to happen. He knew it. If it seems radical that this was said by someone like James in the early 1800s, it shouldn't be. It's easy to think that there were not many black Americans with this power at the time, but there were plenty of people just like him who were already a huge part of American society. Sadly, in the best case scenarios, their stories are crowded out of the history books by other names. And in the worst cases, they are not remembered at all or even written out of the pages. That's a shame because James Fortin, all things considered, might be one of the most pivotal and impressive Americans in all of history. He was honored in Philadelphia When he died in 1842, his funeral was attended by thousands of people, both black and white. They marched with the casket and paid tribute not just to a veteran, not just to a successful businessman, but to a civil rights leader, long before that was what someone like James Fortin would have even been called. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back, and it's time for You Have 30 Seconds. Piper from Carmel, Indiana, is going to tell us about Nathaniel Bowditch. 
Hi, I'm Piper, and today I want to tell you about Nathaniel Bush. Nathaniel Bush was born in the 1770s in Salem, Massachusetts. When he was 10 years old, he had to quit school to help his family, but he loved learning. So at the age of 14, he taught himself algebra and aimed to go to Harvard. When he was 18, he started work on a ship called the Henry, where he would often look through the ship's navigation book to be a practical navigator. It was said to be the most flawless navigation book available, but Nathaniel found thousands of flaws in it about where islands were located, resulting in many shipwrecks. Nathaniel worked hard and wrote a book called The New American Practical Navigator. Harvard eventually gave him a degree in recognition of his book. Love you, show, Vic. Piper, holy cow, I'm out of breath from that. How did you fit all of that in? <sighs> wow, that was really awesome. Thank you, thank you, and hello from a neighboring state of Kentucky to you in Indiana. I'm very excited that you're not so far away and listening. Uh, and that's super cool. I did not know about Nathaniel, and he is somebody that is going to go on my short list of people to learn more about. If you have a you, 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 have a 30 seconds, then all you need to do is send it to... Hello at the past and the curious. You know, recorded on a phone or an iPad or something. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Oh, snap. That's right. It's quiz time. Here we are already. Okay, so these questions are about Philadelphia. Since both of our story figures hail from Philly as well. So here we go. Question number one. Philadelphia is home to the oldest street in America that has continually always had people living on it. Any idea what it's called? It is called Elfrith's Alley. That's the name of the street, Elfrith's Alley. And it has 32 homes today, the oldest of which dates back to 1703. I bet that's tough to modernize as someone who lives in an old house. Yeesh. There's also a museum uh, in the area dedicated to Alfred Sally. It's actually on the street. Um, and I've walked down that street, Alfred Sally, a couple times, and it is really awesome. So if you're in Philly, take a quick stroll. I highly recommend it. Question number two. Is Philadelphia home to America's first art museum or first zoo? Haha, trick question. The answer is both. The Philadelphia Zoo was founded just before the Civil War in 1859, but the war postponed the actual opening by a few years. On the other hand, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts was the first art museum in the United States, and it was also the first art school. It was founded way back in 1805 and is still welcoming visitors and students today. All right, question number three, and this is for avid listeners of the show. A museum in the Philadelphia building known as Independence Hall was founded long ago by Charles Wilson Peale, and among many things, it was home to a live creature brought back from the Lewis and Clark expedition. What kind of critter was it? That's right, you got it. It was a prairie dog. We have a whole episode featuring that little prairie dog. He had quite an eventful life and afterlife. Good job. Thanks for playing. If you're not exactly sure what a bugle is, that's okay. Simply put, it's a musical instrument that you'd probably mistake for a trumpet. They look a lot alike. But a bugle ain't a trumpet, and a trumpet ain't a bugle. <laughs>
Trumpets are a chromatic instrument, meaning that they can play every note of a Western scale, the white and black keys on a piano, in other words. Up on the top of the curly round pipes, trumpets have valves, which a player operates by pressing the keys with their fingers. By using different valves while also changing the shape of their lips and how hard they blow into the mouthpiece, a trumpet player can play any note a violinist, saxophonist, or guitarist can. A bugler cannot. Sorry, buglers. Bugles have no valves, so the only notes that can be played on the brass instrument are notes a player can achieve by changing their lip shape and the pressure of air. It is not a chromatic instrument. It is not possible to play every note on a bugle. As a result, the melodies played on this instrument are limited. Most commonly, bugles have been used for signaling in the military, like to tell troops it's time to wake up, eat, or assemble. Probably the most famous bugle call is taps, which is used to signal lights out each night, but now is more known to mark solemn occasions. It's a powerful melody usually heard at the funeral of a veteran. But where I'm from, this call, known as Call to the Post, is also very famous. It marks the beginning of an annual horse race known as the Kentucky Derby. Hey, buglers, do you wish you had all the notes? Are your melodies feeling a little restricted? Sure, we'd all like to just tweak our lips and wriggle our fingers and make as much music as a trumpet. But it's always felt impossible. Because with a regular old bugle, it is. But now, with the new keyed bugle, it's impossible no more. Get the new keyed bugle wherever fine bugles are sold. In the early 1800s, a new improved bugle came from Europe to give buglers a chance to play melodies that they couldn't play before. This new keyed bugle was chromatic, and for a while it was very popular, though very few people play it today. The first American to truly master this instrument was a man named Francis Johnson. Frank, as he was also known, was a virtuoso keyed bugler. But he wasn't sitting around waiting for the new instrument before that. He was already an incredible violinist and pianist, and he played a whole bunch of other instruments too. The bugle was just a new sound he wanted to bring to his music. Frank Johnson was a friend of James Fortin, and they lived near one another in Philadelphia. Also, like Mr. Fortin, Frank was a black man who was born free in the 1700s. Though unlike his friend Fortin, we're not totally sure where he was born. Some believe he was born in the Caribbean on the island of Martinique, but a baptism record from Philadelphia seems to prove that he most likely opened his eyes in 1792, while his future friend was perfecting his abilities at making sales in the very same city. Even early in his life, Frank was an accomplished musician who earned a tidy living as a violinist. The boy had a mind for much, so Philadelphia citizens might also catch him performing on piano, 
piccolo, or flute. At just 15, he was hired to perform regularly at the Exchange Coffee House, a popular hangout for white society. It was there that he began to build an audience. His performances were unusual and never the same. Sometimes he'd play classical melodies, sometimes he'd play fiddle melodies that were more commonly heard on plantations or at a community dance. Other times he'd play stuff he made up himself. Each time, however, was a little different. The music was alive in his hands, and he played with passion and creativity and a willingness to express himself through the violin in his hands. This was pretty unheard of and hard to do, especially for such a young artist. But Frank was not typical. One man who heard Frank happened to be a Philadelphia music publisher, meaning he published, printed, and sold sheet music for people to buy so they could play music in their homes. In 1810, when the man heard 18-year-old Frank, the world was nearly a century away from being able to listen to recorded music. So if somebody wanted to hear the most popular song of the day, they had to play it themselves, or know someone who could play it. Commonly, the eldest daughter in many families would learn to play an instrument to provide entertainment for the family. Well, this publisher wanted to share Frank's gift with the world and asked him to write a tune to sell as print music for everyone to play. The piece Frank wrote, called Bingham's Cotillion, might not have sold at Michael Jackson or Taylor Swift levels, but it did break ground in other ways. Francis Frank Johnson became the first black American to publish original music. This was a huge moment, and it paved the way for so many musicians to follow in his path, from Louis Armstrong to Beyonce. Now, with popular music in print, the desire to see him live became greater to many people in America and beyond. His music career skyrocketed, which is a strange thing to say about a man nearly no one has heard of today. But stardom in a time before recorded music means that stardom was limited to his lifetime. We'll never get to hear him play. For Frank, eternal stardom, which is being famous long after you're gone, was next to impossible. Despite his relative obscurity today, he was once known by music lovers all over America and Europe. After getting one of America's first keyed bugles, he mastered it and assembled a band, mostly other horns and mostly other free black musicians playing those horns. And before long, they were the toast of the town. If you were having a party and you wanted to really move people, there was only one real choice in all of Philadelphia. Frank Johnson's band would move just about anyone. Newspapers wrote columns about the music. People dashed off letters, excited by their fantastic evenings moving to the sounds he made. Audiences watched with amazement when he mimicked bird calls and fire alarms with his trusty instruments. There was even a rumor that when the Masonic Hall caught fire while packed with eager listeners, it was the fierce playing of Frank's band that lit the spark. No one got hurt. And of course, it wasn't the music that started the fire, but the story sure made some good press for the hottest band on the East Coast. 
1837, he and three other bandmates packed their bags for Europe. Setting sail, they once again blazed a trail. As the first black American professional musicians to perform in Europe, they played to packed concert halls in England and France, earned rave reviews, and they even performed for Her Royal Majesty, Queen Victoria. Europe, famous for its classical music, was a great place to learn for Frank. He listened to as much as he could and discovered new music that wasn't available yet in America. He also hung out with Austrian composer Johann Strauss, one of the most important composers of the day. Much of the music Frank heard while there was performed exactly as it was written. That's a common trait with much of what we call classical music today. The notes on the paper are what the musicians play. But according to writings from Frank's time, he played more than what was on the page. Sure, he played with expression, but he also played with freedom and confidence to make every song unmistakably Frank's own. Also, if he felt like playing classical melodies as a dance, or sentimental songs, which would normally be slow and sad, as up-tempo numbers, well, he'd do it. When the band made it back to American shores, they were eager to share not just what they learned, but also the new music and techniques that they had digested, developed, and adapted while visiting the continent that had given the world so much of the music that they loved. The next year, 1838, was also monumental because they went on a national tour, performing for audiences from New York to Virginia, Kentucky to Missouri. Of course, at this time, in many of these states, slavery was legal. While many people came to hear the band of black musicians, others were angry that they were there to perform in the first place. In some cities, they were attacked outside the concert venues, but they still played. And they were unlike anything the audience had ever heard before. Unfortunately, not many years after this tour, Frank got sick. He had been performing in Philly, writing more music and teaching lessons to the musically curious when it happened. He always remained in demand, and he was also always adventurous. He once took a poem James Fortin's daughter, Sarah Louisa Fortin, had written, called The Grave of a Slave, and Frank set it to music. His students remembered instruments all around his studio, all sorts of kinds of ways to make beautiful noises. But the illness ended his life early. It was 1844, and he was 51 years old. His friend, James Fortin, who was 24 years older, had just died two years before. Both of them proved a lot to the world, and both of them challenged the way most people thought at the time, and both of them made the lives that they desired for themselves, and both knew there were plenty of other people who would never have that opportunity. For these reasons, and so many more, we should remember them. We should tell their stories alongside all of the other ones that are told from their lifetime. For years after his death, his legacy was kept alive by his band members who performed his music, along with their own, for the rest of their lives. After that, his music only lived on in print form for those who went looking for it. Tastes changed and the man who was once a star was largely forgotten. Recently, however, his music has resurfaced. It pops up regularly on programs of classical music, so keep an eye or an ear out. In 2023, 
Philadelphia's own Museum of the American Revolution mounted an exhibit about James Fortin that also featured Frank Johnson. On their website, they share recordings of modern-day performances of Johnson's music. I will post a link to that in this episode's notes and on our website. I highly encourage you to listen. Thank you for listening. And yeah, I I would like to have used some of Frank's music, but there's none of it that's being performed that's in the public domain. So um, that's why I'm going to direct people to the website, uh, the the Revolutionary War Museum in Philadelphia, their website, because um, uh, they have the rights for that. So you can listen to it for free from them. Uh, And it's it's really cool. It's fascinating to listen to. Um, Does it sound like Frank would have played it? Mm, Well, we just don't know, do we? Anyway, I do want to thank my friend Kent Clarer for his trumpet and bugling. Uh, he's a brass player. Excellent. And uh, I'm grateful to him for his gift uh, and, and being able to musically illustrate some of the concepts that I was putting into the writing. So thank you, Kent. Um, and then uh, I hope you have your calendar marked for March 3rd. Um, I, times to be determined because it's Sunday. I'm trying to figure out what will be the best times because I know there's a lot of people across a lot of time zones. I usually even have some people from Australia tune in, but it's super fun. We'll just log in on YouTube Live. The, le- the link will be on my website. Um, and I'll share it on socials and, um, you, I'll read the book and we'll talk a little bit and you know, it's fun. It's the anniversary. It's a great, great anniversary to mark, I think. Cause it's so weird. Um, okay. I have some Patreon people to thank. Um, first off, I need to thank Jeff Britsky. Jeff, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you are out in the world, uh, and listening to the show. And then, oh, I also have a birthday message to send. It's a couple days late because there was a birthday on January 20th. That's right, Sammy. I'm talking to you. Sammy in San Diego. San Diego, Sammy. Happy birthday, buddy. And I'm so glad that you enjoy the show. I'm so glad that you listen. And uh, I hope hope, uh, this message finds you well. And I hope you had a great birthday. And I hope everyone else out there has a great end of January, beginning of February. I'll be back at you uh, in February. And then I'm going to have a special episode around the meat shower because uh, breaking news, which I kind of alluded to last year, um, but uh, more to come on that. And then, you know, and then a normal episode in March. So you'll hear from me a little bit more often in the, in the month, months ahead. Uh, and uh, until then, be well, be nice. And, uh, tell somebody about the show. I really appreciate it if you would share it and your enjoyment bordering into fanaticism about this show, maybe. I don't know. Or just be like, yeah, I like the show. You should listen to it. That's helpful too. Thank you very much. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and The Curious. <laughs>